Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, October 18th. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we're running down, uh, wrapping up the uh, week that was in week seven, previewing what's coming up in week eight as we are, you know, headed into the stretch run of the Division Three football season now here on uh, D3Football.com and our, uh, our weekly podcast. And uh, Keith, you know, sometimes, uh, not every week, but every once in a while, we have to kind of... Uh, put together a, a theme of the week, kind of figure out uh, what kind of tied the week together. But uh, this week it was pretty obvious. There were uh, there were a lot of upsets. Uh, on the front page of the site on Saturday, I termed it kind of a course correction, and we ended up uh, doing a, a, a fairly significant course correction in the top 25, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I, I think that uh, you know, obviously the, the, the catalyst for all of this was uh, Wartburg going to Coe on Coe's homecoming and coming away with a 10-point win, 31-21. Yeah, that, that was absolutely a huge victory, not just um, for, for Wartburg in the, uh, in the IIAC schedule, but it, it changed the way we look at, at the top 25. You know, we had Coe as high as number six in the country, and, and now you, when you change that order in that conference, you know, rather than it being Coe, which beat Central, which you know we expect to be better than Warburg. Now it's Warburg beat Co, which beat Central. So you you change the order of that top three in that conference, and that significantly you, know, you move Co down the top twenty-five, not out of the top twenty-five for for a lot of ballots. And then that also uh, by association affected Central's ranking, and they were ranked, you know, for for a lot of people, um, you know, in the teens or in the single digits. They were number nine last week, and they they dropped nine spots just by virtue. You know, they they won. Uh, one big on Saturday against Luther, forty-five, twenty-five, and uh, and dropped nine spots. But but by virtue of who who they've played and who they've lost to, and Pat, when we get to talking uh, specifically about the top twenty-five, we'll talk a little bit about that theory that that you sort of came up with a few years ago that it's not who you lost to, it's who you beat. And uh, as you look at the teams that, that at least as I look at the teams and I look at my ballot, it's uh, it's the teams with you know one or two victories over four or five win teams that are really impressive. And of course, uh, you know, Warburg still has one more uh, one more significant win against a conference contender that they have to come up with. That's not until week ten. Uh, this upcoming week, they host Dubuque, then they host Luther, then they're at Central and at Simpson to uh, close out the regular season. We know that in the uh, Iowa Conference, if it ends up being a three-way tie, that that conference uses uh, uses the Rose Bowl rule. Uh, so that means basically. Uh, that, that gives an advantage to the team that has been out of the playoffs the longest, uh, in which case that would be Warburg if, if they end up with a, a three-way tie with Cohen Central, because Cohen Central each went to the playoffs last year. What I, I don't know, and we'll have to get clarification from the conference office on this, is uh, whether the rule is specific to last time someone won the conference or last time someone made the playoffs, because that would uh, provide a different result, but we'll uh, continue to chase that down. Um, you know, we are... Uh, I, I guess I can't say we're uh, completely uh, devoid of three-way tie possibilities in the end, Jack. But with uh, the um, with Rowan defeating Cortland, that puts uh, those two teams tied in a, a one-loss position, each a half game apart. And then uh, behind Montclair State, which remains unbeaten in the conference and unbeaten overall, six and zero overall and five and zero in the league. Yeah, and, and you know we talked about changing the order in the uh, in Iowa. We changed it a little bit in New Jersey now. I, I thought it was going to be a, a two two team race after both Montclair State and Cortland State had beaten Kane, which which seemed like it was going to be the third team and Rowan was going to be the fourth team. All of a sudden, you, you see Rowan 
um, with the 20 to 17 win on Saturday against Cortland State. Now they move up to sort of that second spot, and they've they've already lost earlier in the season to Montclair State 26-7. So Montclair State is still in control of its of its destiny, but there's there's a big matchup on October 30th when uh, when Montclair State and Cortland State play. You go back to that maybe three-way tie scenario, and it happens across the country. You know, four, five, six conferences every year, week 10, week 11, are staring at these scenarios, and occasionally you're staring at a four- or five-way tie. We have one conference that's staring at a five-way tie, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit later in the podcast. So, to, you know, Keith, um, the the difference between, uh, to me, between Cortland and Rowan right now, uh, you know, uh, now in the NJAC, the NJAC is a 10-team league. Uh, everybody plays nine conference games, and there's only one non-conference game on the schedule. Uh, Montclair State uh, played a team out of the out of the NEFC. Cortland has yet to play its non-conference game. Of course, they finished with Ithaca for the Cortica Jug at the end of the season. But but Rowan, with a uh, with a win against Lye coming earlier on in the season, uh, I think puts itself in fairly decent at-large position. Certainly now uh, ahead of Cortland because of the head-to-head win. Uh, but also, uh, you know, Rowan's playing better of late on offense. Tim Haggerty back in at quarterback uh, for the profs, and it it seems like uh, things have turned around just a little bit for Rowan. Yeah, absolutely. That that was a team that started the season sort of searching for its its uh, identity at running back, at wide receiver, rotating a lot of guys in, and, and then you know when you when you you don't necessarily have a quarterback, it, it just wasn't your your typical uh, Rowan team that came in as either a defensive juggernaut or an offensive juggernaut. But as they they find themselves now, and, and with this win uh, against the uh, Red Dragons, now they're they're big fans. Montclair State from here on out because Montclair State um, wins the NJAC, then uh, and Rowan finishes with just the one loss to them. They'll have the win over over Lycoming, and they're now they're big Lycoming fans too because the, you know the more those two teams win, the Red Hawks and the Warriors, the more they win, the better that is for Rowan's strength of schedule. And and as we know, Pat, sometimes on on, uh, on selection Saturday night. They really get into slicing and dicing those numbers, and they're, and they're looking for a reason. To, to take a team and, and Rowan, you know, having a victory over over uh, Lycoming now, which is five and one at this point, uh, in position to play uh, this coming Saturday at Delaware Valley for for the lead in the MAC. You know, the, the the better that is, the better they do, the better that is for Rowan. And teams that do not win their automatic bid are chasing one of six at-large bids. Those are called Pool C bids. Uh, those are selected after all the automatic bids go into the field. Uh, Teams that are not in one of those conferences uh, or are independents are, are, are in Pool B, and there are three bids set aside for those teams. And then everybody else is a true at-large. There's just those six bids nationally. There's no, uh, you know, there's no automatic uh, number of, of them given to one region over another. So uh, the, the 23 conferences and anybody left over from Pool B has, uh, has a shot at those, uh, at those six Pool C bids. Pat, I think there's a legitimate chance if if Salisbury upsets Wesley here in a, in a couple of weeks for there to be four Pool B teams that get in because, as we mentioned last week in the podcast, there's no precedent for leaving an unbeaten Pool B team home, and we still have Case Western Reserve, Wesley, and uh, SUNY Maritime all unbeaten in Pool B. So if Case and, and SUNY Maritime finish unbeaten and Wesley and Salisbury both finish with one loss, both of those teams are going to stack up pretty well with with the other Pool C candidates. Wesley has a victory over uh, Delaware Valley. Salisbury has played uh, 
has played uh, Hampton Sydney and and big win over Huntingdon on uh, this past Saturday. And then of course, uh, if they were to be in this position, they would have to have that win over Wesley in the Route 13 showdown. They would. Uh, the uh, you know the the committee has had the opportunity to take a fourth pool B team before, uh, and they uh, elected not to do so. They kind of they left uh, they left Whitworth hanging for all intents and purposes a couple of years ago, and took Wisconsin Eau Claire, a, a two loss team for Pool C rather than uh, uh, Whitworth, with ha- which had just one regional loss. So it's in the books. Uh, it's certainly possible for an extra Pool B team to get a Pool C selection. It happens fairly frequently in some other sports. Like it happens uh, in baseball fairly often. Hasn't happened in men's basketball. Hasn't happened in women's basketball. Hasn't happened in football so far. But certainly in the scenario you lay out, I, I think it's possible. Uh, what I don't see, and, and one of the things I wanted to mention is we will be putting uh, the strength of schedule numbers out there for you guys to look at this week uh, for the first time this season. So we'll have that to reference. But what I've seen out of the preliminary numbers so far is that uh, SUNY Maritime with a, uh, with a strength of schedule number of below 400 is probably not a team that's going to get in with one loss. And, and maybe uh, looking, at what, uh, looking at what Norwich has going for it as well, you know, they're, uh, they're in a similar, mm-hmm. s- similar situation. I, I'm not sure that either of those teams gets in with one loss, but I think SUNY Maritime unbeaten is going to be in, obviously, no matter what. Yeah, as we said, we've, we've really never seen an, an unbeaten team get left out, and, and really there's no reason to when you have 32 openings. Moving on to some of the other upsets from uh, Saturday's Week 7 action, the, the the one that surprised me the most, I guess, was the Alfred RPI game. And, um, you know, not only because we've talked about this on the podcast in, in the past, in previous weeks, that the R, that RPI's kind of uh, underwhelmed or, or underachieved a little bit this season. Um, losing at home to WPI, for example, um, you know, losing by three touchdowns at, at Utica. Uh, Utica's having a good year, but... Uh, you know, RPI got blown out in that game. Struggling to win at home in the uh, season opener against Endicott, winning six to three. For them to to pull off what they did on Saturday, kind of uh, screams to people to take a, a closer look at what went on. And what went on was uh, a, a really windy day at uh, RPI's East Campus Stadium, where uh, RPI scored 24 points in the first quarter. Uh, Alfred scored seven and seventeen in the in the second and third quarter, and then RPI scored again with the wind at its back in the fourth quarter, and nobody scored going into the wind all afternoon. Yeah, and it's amazing that wind can play that big a factor, but we've seen it happen uh, many times over the years, Pat, and, and certainly that seemed to be the case on Saturday, as you mentioned, all the points scored going into the wind. I, I thought the the other interesting thing about the about the way. The points went in that game with RPI jumping out to that 24-0 lead. And then Alfred, you know, the, supposedly the better team on, on paper, storming back to that 24-0 lead. A lot of times when that happens, when a team, you know, plays above it above itself, gets a lead, and then gives that lead up, that the better team comes back and has that momentum. And uh, Alfred was able to, to bring it all the way back, scored with eight seconds left in the third quarter, and then no points in the fourth quarter. RPI's uh, Peter Nielsen kicked the 37-yard field goal with six seconds left in the fourth to win it. So uh, clearly, RPI was was able to to uh, to withstand, you know, the comeback uh, of of Alfred of the Saxons, and it was it was really impressive to me as we watched the scores fluctuate on Saturday and to see Alfred come back. You figure, okay, they they've gotten their stuff together here. And uh, clearly, it wasn't necessarily a matter of the two-team strength. They probably did have a whole lot to do with the, having the wind at your back in that game. 
Alfred, uh, in the fourth quarter, here, here's how their drives went. Uh, a nine-play, 13-yard drive where they started at their own 36, uh, had a sack, a couple completed passes, a holding call on third and two, a sack on third and eight, uh, pushing them back into their own territory, uh, punted the ball away. And then because RPI has the wind at its back, they go six plays in just 19 yards, but a 62-yard punt uh, into the end zone. Alfred starts at its own 20, goes three and out. RPI drives again. Uh, they get all the way down to the Alfred 19 and uh, and fail to convert on a, uh, on a fourth down and one. Alfred goes three plays, six yards. They punt the ball just 26 yards, and, and RPI gets it on its side of uh, on uh, on its side of the 50, and then run pretty much the entire clock down, kick the game-winning field goal. The only thing Alfred has uh, left to do is to uh, try the uh, the miracle lateral play, and they uh, they got a handful of yards out of it. But uh, not nearly enough, and it ended up, uh, of course, the 27-24 RPI win. And, and this is something, Pat, to, to both of these teams, but especially to RPI, that's very unfamiliar. Remember, for for you know, 100 years, uh, RPI played at, at 86 Field, and it was it was a field surrounded by buildings, and they didn't have to deal with with the wind necessarily. So now this new East Campus Stadium opened at the beginning of 2009. This is all brand new to them, learning how to to navigate the wind and and they, they probably had a little more experience figuring it out on their home field than, than Alfred did. But both teams used it to their advantage on Saturday, and RPI was able to, to, to manage the upset that way. You know, RPI, Keith, is not out of, and this is not a conference game, of course. Alfred's in the Empire 8, and, and RPI's in the Liberty League. But the, this, the Liberty League remains wide open. Uh, St. Lawrence goes to Union and wins uh, on Saturday 23-14. So St. Lawrence remains on top of the conference at 3-0. and uh, Merchant Marine is right behind at two and one, and St. Lawrence has already played Merchant Marine, and, and uh, obviously they've beaten them, so they have a, a little bit of an extra advantage over them. Uh, Hobart and RPI have each played just one conference or two conference games each; they're each one and one. Union's two and two. Uh, you know they're, I would say, close to being out of it at, at this point. Uh, and then WPI's one and two, and Rochester is really out of it; they're zero and five overall, zero and three in the conference. But the the Liberty League is a a very wide open conference, and it's just it's just odd to see. St. Lawrence on top at three and zero. They're just three and four overall, and they could qualify for the 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 playoffs by winning the conference title and still go just five and five if things broke right. But it, it's just a, a a it's a wide open league, and b uh, RPI still has uh, control of its own destiny. Yeah, it's it's certainly weird to see a three and four team at the top of any conference standing. And uh, you know St. Lawrence is a program that's been traditionally down, and we don't we don't normally see that you know. And and now under Mark Raymond, you know they're they're turned around a little bit, and uh, they're in position. And we we thought the the Liberty League would be a little bit interesting this year because the champion from last season, Susquehanna, moved on to the Centennial Conference for this season. So we knew it would be wide open. We just didn't know it would be this wide open, Pat. And the real bizarre thing is, is if you look at St. Lawrence as that the conference leader, that's a team that lost by 30 points to Ithaca on, on the opener, was beaten by Norwich from the uh, ECFC, lost to Alfred, and, and lost uh, at Utica the the week before this week's big win. So you know every they're 0 and 4 uh, at a conference, but that could be the team that that represents the Liberty League in the playoffs. This is not a uh, this is not a discussion here with with this conference that's going to uh, affect the top twenty five. But uh, there, there's one other upset, of course, that does, and that's uh, Randolph Macon losing at Washington and Lee. And, and 
I don't know, maybe I did speak, speak prematurely when I uh, termed Alfred RPI the, the most puzzling upset of the afternoon on Saturday because uh, Randolph-Macon losing at Washington and Lee certainly belongs in, in, uh, in that type of discussion as well. Yeah, and, and I actually thought that's what you were going for, but but it uh, it's not completely puzzling in the sense that Washington and Lee um, was was the sixth best rushing team in the country coming into the game, where they were the first team that that wasn't featured in the uh, around the nation about the triple options um, offenses. That, you know, they were the best rushing offense outside of those that, that triple option five, and uh, they rushed for four hundred yard four hundred twenty seven yards against Randolph Macon, which. Um, sort of, I guess, exposed the Russian defense, but also I think says a lot about about how good Washington and Lee is on the ground because it's the fourth time this season they've gone over 400 yards rushing, which is just a staggering, staggering statistic if you think about it. Yeah, and, and you know, having seen Washington and Lee at various times over the past decade, this is a, a real departure for them. This is not what they've uh, what they've done on offense for for some time now. No, you know, they, they've you know followed the, the footsteps of, of many teams and, and tried to, you know, spread it out and throw the ball. And, and clearly they, they've uh, they've got something that works. You know, it, it's strange, too, because Frank Muriello is still the coach there, and he's been he's been the coach there for years and years and years. So he, he's obviously has a case of, of he's adjusting to his personnel. And uh, on, on Saturday against Randolph-Macon, Luke Heinsohn rushed for 147 yards. Brett Murray rushed for 100 yards, just 10 carries, so you know, 10 yards a carry. And then Charlie Westfall rushed for 97 yards. So if you've got three backs that, that can pick up yards at that kind of clip, you, know, you might as well use them. The thing that, one of the things that I always like to look at in, uh, in looking at rushing totals, Keith, is, is how many uh, yards were lost. That is, you know, there's the, the gain, there's the gain cal- column, the loss column, how many times or how many yards they were uh, knocked down behind the line of scrimmage for, and then you know, X minus Y equals the net. Uh, other than, you know, four kneel downs at the end of the game and, and 12 yards lost uh, by the quarterback, none of them are listed as sacks. But, you know, when you're running primarily an option, you know, passing downs could end up uh, not being counted as sacks. The, the, basically, the two guys who are the main running backs, running backs, did not get stopped behind the line of scrimmage once all afternoon. And, Pat, you're right. That, that's showing, showing you an offense that's getting a push off its offensive line every time it runs the ball even on plays that are that are you know um but they don't get all the blocks right you know somebody misses a, an assignment they're still getting positive yards or getting back to the line of scrimmage more often than not and, and the other thing too is when you run the ball this well and and we i did write about this a little bit in last thursday's around the nation with the uh with the triple option teams you know a lot of them don't pass much and and that means they don't put themselves at risk of getting sacked of turning the ball over through the air and and uh, or or throwing incompletions, having wasted downs. So, you know, when you talk about them not getting pushed back, you know, their average gain per play seven yards a play, because they're not having any 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 incomplete passes where those where their gains are zero, and and they only they only uh, attempted six passes. They were four or six passing uh, on Saturday, and and if you can run well enough to where you don't even have to pass. Except you know, not hardly to even keep the defense honest. You know, you do it and you go to it. And and the real interesting thing um, was that Washington Lee was able to do that. Um, ran the ball 64 times, put it on the ground four times, but only lost one fumble. And then, as they built that lead, you know, it was 28-14 at the half, and, and they actually turned it to a to 35-14 game. You know, Randolph Macon cut it to 14 twice in that game. Plenty of time left when they scored their last touchdown, 7:55 for a team with a, a fifth-year quarterback and a star-wide receiver and Earl Peoples to try to get back in that game, and the uh, the general's defense was able to salt it away. So certainly impressive and certainly now confuses things, I think, 
in the ODAC. You still have Hampton Sydney out in front, and they had a really impressive win on Saturday, 48-10 against Emory and Henry. So now they're out in front, 7-0. Uh, and But Bridgewater's still in the picture. Randolph-Macon still in the picture. They'll they'll play Hampton Sydney in Week 11. Washington and Lee is in the mix. And then Emory and Henry, you know, they they're now have a couple of key losses, but they're not an easy victory by any means. No, and Emory and Henry, uh, if you look at them at the bottom of the conference and see 0-3 in the league, uh, you may get the the wrong impression about what it might take to beat them over the the course of the rest of the season. Now, Hampton, Sydney, and Washington Lee tied at the top of the conference, each at three and zero, with uh, Randolph making a game behind at two and one, and Bridgewater a game and a half back at one and one. So, Keith, you know, the the three uh, the last three upsets we talked about: uh, Cortland uh, losing to Rowan, Al- Alfred falling at RPI, Randolph making losing on the road to Washington Lee. None of those. Uh, as individual losses, or even maybe in the combination of them, would have resulted in the amount of massive overhaul that uh, I think a lot of people had to do on their top 25 ballots this week because of uh, co-losing at home to Wartburg. There, there's, a, there's a couple of things there. First of all, uh, Co lost at home, and all three of these other teams that we talked about lost on the road. And, and Co <laughs> was number six, and, and these other teams were uh, in the, uh, you know, the, the the, the bottom quadrant of the uh, of the top 25. So when we when we go back to uh, the balloting at, at this point on, on Sunday, you got to look at a couple of things. One, Wartburg's undefeated, and they have been you know they've been undefeated but not in the top 25. So there are a lot of people obviously who haven't been voting for them. Um, there are going to be there's a lot of ballots that they weren't on. Uh, Coe was number six, and they had beaten a top 10 team already this season. So they there was a uh, yeah there was legitimate reason to have them where uh, voters had them but now you gotta you gotta throw that out and throwing a throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak is is where central ends up losing nine spots in the poll despite having one on saturday yeah and, and i think if you're being honest as a voter you have to look at the the whole entire body of work the whole seven weeks now you can't just say, well, Co. I mean, well, Central won on Saturday, so uh, they automatically move up, or they they can't drop down because they won. Because you look at that body of work, they lost a head-to-head game to Co. a few weeks ago, so you you can't rank them ahead of Co. And if Co. drops because of losing to Warburg, then that sort of pushes Central down by nature. So then the question becomes, where do you put Warburg in the poll? And if you had the best team in in, in the Iowa Conference number six in your poll or or wherever you may have had them you know you can you can justifiably turn around and slot Warburg and just say I thought Co was that team and now Warburg is that team and you can slot Warburg wherever you had Co. and that's probably not how a lot of us did it and and in our top 25 it left us with with three uh Iowa teams now ranked 13th Warburg 16th Co, 18th Central you know for me personally that that it was hard to keep three teams Ranked, it was very easy, Pat, as you mentioned, to drop um, Cortland, Randolph, Macon, and Alfred out because they were in the, the the lower third of that top 25. But you couldn't drop Cole all the way from the top 10 out of the poll, and uh, it, it sort of made for a, a massive rejiggering of the top 25, starting with where you slotted Warper. And I think uh, Keith, part uh, part and parcel with that is uh, why. Wartburg wasn't in the top 25 in the first place. You just mentioned one of the key points. You know, what does it take as as a voter to put three Iowa conference teams on your ballot in, in the top 25? And if you were going to put, you, you consider all three of them, they were all 
unbeaten or with one loss uh, coming into the week, and nobody had a bad loss. And the team that had the team that had the loss, Central, had uh, non-conference wins against Augustana and uh, a, a team from the the YX. So there was certainly plenty of reason to to keep them in the poll. Uh, you know, Wartburg, they they beat Monmouth uh, the first week of the season when Monmouth was at full strength. Uh, but clearly, uh, certainly Monmouth is not at full strength anymore, and that, that win doesn't look anywhere near as impressive as it would have in week one. Uh, even if Monmouth had continued fully healthy, I suspect they probably would not have, uh, they probably would have more than one loss anyway, because I, I don't think they were playing that well, even when they uh, when they had Tanny. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, the win against Monmouth becomes devalued, uh, you know, Playing Gustavus Adolphus uh, is is not a, an impressive out of conference win. And they played Cornell, they played Loris, they played Buena Vista, and they you know they blew all those teams out. They shut out two of them. Uh, they held the other two to six and fourteen points. You know basically they had uh, allowed just twenty seven points in the five games coming into Saturday. But because of who they played, it was kind of hard to figure out what to make of them. Pat, I, I think you touched on the the major point, and, and I think the the second key point there is is a lot of people when they when you start off your ballot at the beginning of the year you're going off of where teams ended last season and for co and for central that was in the playoffs and for co in particular with the upset of st john's in the first round you know they they moved on around they won in the playoffs and so in a lot of people's mind when you look at what all three of those teams were bringing back you started off with co in the poll then with central and and then those two teams played each other so they each had a, 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 a big-name opponent now, with, which Warburg didn't have. And Warburg's big-name opponent, Pat, as you mentioned, got all, struggled in, in the start. You know, Warburg started off with Monmouth. And then if you just jump back to last week and you evaluate Warburg's slate, you know, they had a, a three and two, a win over a 3-2 and two Monmouth team and then Gustavus, Cornell, Loris, Buena Vista, nothing impressive. Even though they beat those teams by impressive scores, you know, it wasn't an impressive opponent. Now you take that exact same slate, you add a victory against Coe, which ranked number six in the country at the time to it, and then Monmouth wins its fourth game, and, and now it's a four and two team, and that win starts to look a little a little bit better, you know, and you start to look at the entire body of work, and you realize, wow, they haven't given up hardly any points. They have a win over a very good team, a, a Coe team that was undefeated when they played them. Now that body of work starts to look a little better, and uh, it, it's it's amazing how. Until a team gets tested, you, you sometimes don't know what to make of them, and and that was the case with Bethel. I think last week when they were they weren't in the poll, they weren't ranked, and suddenly you know you had the game against St. John's. They beat St. John's and they moved in, you know, and now they have a and, and they have a, their major wins really are just St. Olaf and St. John's. Olaf is four and two, St. John's is three and three, and uh, not not yet really impressive. But nobody really took notice of Bethel because they weren't coming off a long playoff run last season like St. Thomas was, you know, like St. Thomas, uh, St. John's being a playoff team. You very rarely start off with three teams from the same conference ranked, and uh, it takes a little bit of time sometimes for that third team or that fourth team, as we talked about earlier with Rowan, to work its way up the pole. And I think in the case of Bethel and the case of Warburg, that's what's happening. Those teams also continue to get chances down the line to, to continue to prove themselves. Bethel is at St. Thomas this week, and we have to wait till November 6th, week 10, for Warburg to go to Central. But those teams, as the the entire body of work grows, they'll have to have more than one impressive win to stay that high in the top 25. 
one of the things that I do uh, and more often when I'm voting on the basketball poll in uh, the d3hoops.com top 25 is uh, I want to look at what's coming up next in the next week uh, and this works in basketball because you can play two or three games a week in basketball and, and it's not quite the same in football but you know for sometimes I will hold off on ranking a team uh, because I want to see what they're going to do in you know game X next week for for in this instance, you know, you could you could do the same thing with uh, with Wardberg. They went through this stretch of uh, of four games over five weeks against you know really unimpressive uh, opposition, and the 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 schedule for Wardberg was a little bit backloaded. There, they 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 played Co this week. Uh, they host Dubuque, and, and Dubuque is uh, although they're three and four, they're one of the teams I think people thought highly of in the conference, and then they're at Central. In, uh, in week 10, it just made sense to kind of hold off and see what might develop with Wartburg. Pat, sure, be- because instead of you or you, the balloter, in general, deciding where a team deserves to rank, you let the team show you where it deserves to be ranked. You know, Wartburg will tell you on Saturday when they play that game against Coe, they'll tell you where they deserve to be, and they answered. You know, they, they, they kept the ball for 38 minutes, 52 seconds, rushed for 283 yards, beat Coe. 31-21, they won on the road, you know, which not a, not a super huge road trip or, or a super huge uh, home field advantage at Coe, but but you like to add that factor in there that they went to Coe, you know, rushed for 283 yards, 130-121. They told us where they deserve to be uh, ranked. Let's look at some of the other teams that, uh, you know, are in the top 25, some that aren't in the top 25, and there's a, there's a really significant break in the, the way the poll ends up this week, where there, there's a consensus on, you know, the top 23 teams, so to speak, being of top 25 caliber. You've got uh, Cal Lutheran coming in at the 23rd spot with 95 uh, total points. And, and those of you who don't know, the like other top 25 ballots, ours is uh, that the points are determined by which spot you are on the ballot. So the, the number one team gets 25 points, number two, 24, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you go from 95 for Cal Lutheran down to Ursinus, the next team down, as 39. Wabash with 36. That's where the 25 breaks off. And then you've got Case Western Reserve, 35. DePaul, 31. Uh, you know, really, you could put this bubble down to uh, the next team, Rowan, at 29, and Illinois Wesleyan at, at 28. Um, but, you know, this kind of clumping of teams between 28 and 39 points, there's some, there's some interesting teams there, and, and one of which... Uh, is a team that we actually have, have talked about a couple times in Ursinus. Uh, they remained uh, undefeated. They beat Johns Hopkins, and now the Centennial seems to be a two-team race between uh, Ursinus and uh, Muhlenberg. But you know, it, uh, is, does Ursinus deserve to be higher where they are than where they are right now at 24-6-0, and and which is 39 points? You know, I, I have them exactly at 24 on my ballot, and they've sort of hovered around the 20s for, for several weeks for me. You know, I thought the win, the Franklin and Marshall win, was impressive, 10-7, and uh, they haven't played necessarily poorly. You know, they're they're 6-0, and but when you um, when you evaluate them against other teams that are also 6-0, and Ursinus is one of those teams that just doesn't have a real standout win. They, they look, you know, nice of them to beat St. John. I mean, St. John's, Johns Hopkins. But uh, you know they're they're three and three now. Uh, Franklin and Marshall that win w- was impressive at the time, 
and, and Franklin Marshall's a team that, that beat Washington Lee 35-7 at the beginning of the season, but now they lost on, on Saturday to Moravian, and they're 4-2. So, so their, their impressive wins uh, aren't as impressive. And, and if you go back to what we talked about with Rowan being affected positively by its competition and Central being affected negatively by its competition losing, Ursinus probably falls in that second group. And, and the real tough thing about Ursinus now is they don't have another opportunity to beat a really uh, great team. You know, McDaniel was 4-1 and one going into Saturday and, and got blanked by Muhlenberg 29 to nothing. And then, you know, Muhlenberg really in, uh, in Week 10, November 6th, is their next big game. Muhlenberg's 5-1. and one. So, you know, in one sense, you can only play who's on your schedule, and that's fine. That'll get a team. That'll get you your, uh, your automatic bid. But it doesn't necessarily move you in the top 25 ahead of teams who have several games against teams you know with four and five wins or you know at this point that's you know just to evaluate or sign us against a team in its region that, that's you know next door delaware valley doesn't have the same record they have a worse record but the, their loss is to 21 17 to wesley 7 and 0 team number three in the country and they've beaten muhlenberg they've beaten washington jefferson you know, so so delval has some impressive wins now you know against five and one team against a four and one team and, and that's something that teams further down the pole who are unbeaten case western reserve falls in that group uh, and some of those other teams way down there in the 20s and in that right after that break where cal lutheran is you know just maybe don't have that any impressive wins to boost them up higher Ursinus, uh, of course, with the Centennial Conference uh, expanding this year, uh, adding Susquehanna, moving to 10 teams. They have nine conference games. They had just the one non-conference game that they could schedule, and that was against Albright. Albright, uh, I think we knew coming into the season, was going to be a, a shadow of its, uh, of, its, of its former self, of its playoff uh, self. Last year, uh, Ursinus also had a, a non-conference game scheduled against Lebanon Valley. Uh, do you think that having an extra non-conference game for you know, any team, you know, but especially your sinus in a, a position like this where they're trying to prove themselves, is that something that would have helped? Uh, you know, it, it would be nice if they had it and they had a victory in it, but by the same token, you know, they, they scheduled Albright, a team that won in the playoffs last year. You know, it, it looks like a, a, a pretty good game for them. You know, I, I think it, to some degree it's out of your control as a team. You can only play who's on your schedule. And for, for teams in a region like, like Pennsylvania or if you're in a state like Ohio, or, uh, or Virginia, where there's there's more than one conference. You know, Massachusetts is another one. New York, where there's several conferences. You, you know, you can go outside your conference, but not have to take a long road trip. A lot of teams tend to schedule somebody close by, and that's fine. You know, especially if it's somebody that's on your level competitively. You, you can't blame or sinus necessarily, I guess, for who they schedule, but you also can't punish a team who has those games and has won some of those games by ranking them below a team that just happens to be 6-0 and against the competition that it played. And our sinus last year lost to Albright uh, 28-3 to when the uh, roles were reversed a little bit. How about another team that's uh, just on the other side of the top 25 slash others receiving votes dividing line, and that's DePaul. Pat, they've, they've hung below the radar all season, and it's sort of strange because a lot of times when a team is coming off a playoff appearance and, and DePaul was, was one and done last year, so it wasn't a, a, a really impressive year. In fact, they were they were uh, only had seven wins uh, last season going into the playoffs. So it, it wasn't like they're, um, you know, that the, they came off a long playoff run and, and people thought they were dominant. But by the same token, you know, 
coming back this season. Not not a dominant team in the in the SEAC. And, uh, you know, a lot of people thought, uh, or I guess we thought, at least with kickoff, we thought center might be, this might be the year that center would jump into that top three with Millsaps, Trinity, and DePaul. And it hasn't happened. DePaul and Robbie Long, now the coach there in his second season, is, you know, took over right before the season started last year and maybe didn't have a time to get everything uh, like he wanted it. Now he's got it like he's, he wants it. A team 6-0, and 4-0 in the SEAC. And uh, it seems to be getting better as things go, you know. Impressive victory a couple weeks ago at Millsaps, 35-21, and then had to hold off Adrian this week in 23-19. You know, I think they probably fall into that group, Pat, as we mentioned, with their sinus. They're right where they belong in the poll because they don't have a, a, a real wonderful, you know, dominant team on their schedule that they've beaten, and some of their their games have been close games. But you know, you can't you can't knock them too much for for being six and zero. The uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, basically give uh, Ryan Tips a, a bit of a, uh, I don't know, not a plug, but some props for picking that game, uh, the Adrian DePaul game, as the uh, surprisingly close game because I, I think I would have thought going into that game that uh, Adrian coming in at two and three with the, uh, you know, they're only uh, with uh, win at Olivet being one of the wins, uh, being, uh, you know, that a game that DePauw, who's been sitting in my number 25 spot for a couple weeks now, uh, should win at home with some ease, and it certainly did not happen that way. Yeah, if we're giving tips, um, you know, props for for doing well on triple take last week, you know, you got to throw in that he picked uh, he picked Randolph-Macon to be upset by by Washington Lee, and uh, you know, there was the, we all picked pretty good game of the weeks, too, and, and, and tips nailed his uh, as well, all the all the game of the weeks were good, but uh, he picked the Baldwin Wallace Ohio Northern game, and, and you had Warburg at Co. and I had Cortland State at Rowan, and those all turned out to be important games. So you know, as that triple take comes out on Friday morning, take a look at it because there, there's a lot of insight in there, and uh, you know, t- especially Ryan, he, he nailed it pretty well last week. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things about the triple take is not necessarily to put out there everything that we think that everything that that everything we put out there is something we think will happen. My goal, at least when I'm writing it, is to put out something that could possibly happen. I want to put in the minds of the uh, of the readers that uh, Oberlin Wabash could be a close game because of X, Y, and Z, or that you know uh, Cortland State could uh, be a most likely upset because of, uh, of these various factors. So, you know, th- that's just uh, something to keep in mind. There's one more team I wanted to talk about in terms of uh, the whole reordering the top 25 conversation, and this is a team that's not in that uh, that that, cl- that cluster of teams at the bottom. And I'm thinking about St. John Fisher, which has uh, which is seven and zero. They've they've played a, f- a fairly decent schedule, uh, you know. They've um, and they play in a, in, a, in a good conference. They've beaten Ithaca, who's uh, you know traditionally been a contender in that conference. Although St. John Fisher has, has certainly had their number for a couple of years. Uh, they they pounded Hartwick on Saturday. They intercepted eight passes. Uh, you know, they're they're coming to the stretch run at Alfred, uh, home to Frostburg State, and then and then uh, versus Springfield. But what does St. John Fisher have to do to get uh, above uh, where they are right now, number nineteen? I guess keep winning. I mean, because for me, that's a team that that started out in the twenties and has moved up into the single digits for me personally on my ballot. And and the reason for that is. As the competition has gotten increasingly tougher for them, they've performed just as well. You know, they had a three-week stretch where they played Hobart, uh, Utica, 
and, uh, and Ithaca and, and beat all those teams by double digits. In fact, the closest game they've had this season was the 11-point win at Utica. Um, you know, they've, they've blown teams out. They haven't scored fewer than 34 points in a game. Um, you know, only a couple, only three teams have even gotten to the 20s against them defensively. So they, they have it on both sides of the ball. They play it in one of the, you know, nation's toughest conferences in the Empire 8 or the Empire 6, as we like to jokingly call it right now, because there's only six teams. But I, I don't see anything, any reason to knock what St. John Fisher does. And, and at the risk of getting a little ahead of myself, we're actually at a point where if Fisher finishes strong, they got Alfred Frostburg State and Springfield here, they could be that 10-0 and team where where a playoff bracket is based around it in the East. You know, Montclair State is in that group right now as well if, if it can finish strong. Um, I think if you're honestly reevaluating your ballot every week and not just nudging teams up, nudging a team down that loses and then nudging everybody else up one spot or however many teams lose a spot, if you're honestly looking at it, you know, every week or every other week and, and taking a, a look at the entire picture, I think St. John Fisher is one of those teams that's probably pretty significantly underranked right now. You know, uh, I, I thought I was doing well by St. John Fisher, but uh, to, to hear that you have them ranked number seven, uh, maybe I could uh, maybe I could find another uh, handful of spots for them to move them up next week if they continue to win. And obviously winning at Alfred is a... Uh, is a game that would uh, be a, a pretty good statement for top 25 purposes. Um, the, the team that I got to see on Saturday, uh, I, I got a chance to see Wisconsin Whitewater uh, at Eau Claire. And, uh, you know, when I, um, you know, first of all, when I, when I first thought about this game, not really knowing what uh, Eau Claire might do this season, my, my first goal was uh, knowing I'm going to see Mount Union early on, uh, here I get a chance to see Whitewater, and I only have to drive 110 miles each way to do it. Um, but then, you know, Eau Claire got off to a got off to a good start. They beat St. John's. Uh, you know, they were I don't want to say they were competitive against North Central because I'm not sure necessarily that they were. They struggled a little bit. Uh, but then the 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 shine came off this game. Obviously, last week when when Eau Claire went down to Platteville and lost, and Eau Claire on Saturday did not. Uh, put up a, a particularly creditable performance either, to to say the least. They uh, they got blown out 45 to nothing. Uh, they ended up with just 150 yards uh, of total offense. They averaged 2.4 yards a carry. Uh, they barely had uh, any. Uh, they barely ran any plays in Whitewater territory all afternoon. Um, the the one thing that I wanted to see was uh, you know how the the Whitewater uh, secondary looked because that was a spot where they uh, they they lost some pretty significant playmakers from uh, last year's championship team, and Eau Claire simply wasn't capable of testing the uh, the Whitewater secondary. And and one thing we did see was a uh, Matt McCullough returning an interception, 42 yards for a touchdown. So, what minimal testing they got, they passed. But I also um, wanted to talk with uh, Lance Leipold, and I got his take on where he thinks his team is here at the halfway point of the season. Well, I still think there's little things that we've got to clean up, you know, and some somewhere in the penalty, you know, we're we're, we're stopping ourselves. Uh, um, we're progressing nicely. I, I think our passing game's coming along the way we'd like it, and it's just a matter of consistency right now of, of, of where we need to be. Um, we've got some health issues in some positions that that you always uh, worry about that, and and uh, and young in some spots where you know a good a good thing in a second half like this you get a chance to get some of those guys on the field so you, hopefully you can build some depth if you're if you're going to be a team that's that, that has a chance to win a conference championship 
Keith, of course, the injuries he's talking about are, are at, uh, at running back. Uh, Booker Stanley, the, the guy who played at uh, UW-Madison for a, a, for a time before coming to uh, Whitewater now as a 26- or 27-year-old, uh, he's put up some, some good numbers and had some great runs for the Warhawks this season, but he's been injured, and uh, I heard he may not be back until the end of the month. I'm not sure if they would see him next week at River Falls. Uh, I saw Lavelle Coppage on Saturday, and you know, Coppage had 18 carries for 106 yards and two touchdowns, uh, and I have to think that's that's pretty good. But that is almost entirely on the offensive line because you know, Coppage did not have his burst, his breakaway speed. He didn't have uh, the cutback ability that we've seen uh, out of him in the uh, – we saw out of him in the Stag Bowl last year. We didn't really see it the year before either because he was hurt then too. Uh, but, you know uh, – between Coppage and then Antoine Anderson, ten carries for seventy-seven yards, and a, and a and just a an impressive offensive line in front of him. That was uh, almost all the offense that Whitewater needed, and, and for Coppage to do that, I think at maybe I might term him eighty percent was pretty impressive. Pat, I th- I think you're starting to see the effects of five consecutive appearances in the Stag Bowl. You and I have talked about this for years, where Mount Union's success you know, going to Salem consistently year after year, it begins to recruit itself. And then it, it pays dividends because they're they're practicing five more weeks than every other team. And I think you're starting to see that now with Whitewater where they have the depth in the program where if if a guy goes out, you know, they can step in right behind him. There, were, there was a point going into Saturday where we thought Coppage wasn't going to play. We knew Booker Stanley wasn't going to play. And, and they were going to be able to turn to their third running back or – one of the three running backs, Antoine Anderson, a guy who's been a thousand-yard rusher in his career already, you know. So when you have that kind of depth within your program, you also have the depth where the, the competition for offensive line spots. It's not, you know, six guys trying to get five spots. It's it's maybe you know fifteen guys at some point in, in the off season trying to work into those those five available spots. When you have that kind of depth in your program, and then when you're a championship team, you know. Booker Stanley could have could have picked any any school in Wisconsin if he didn't want to, he wanted to stay in the UW system and wanted to get a chance to play somewhere somewhere that would would take him and, and you know you, you pick the championship team right you want to go somewhere where you can win where you can contribute and where you can play 15 games instead of 10 you know that's that's where the stag bowl appearances begin to recruit themselves and then winning breeds more winning you know Keith I I fielded this question several times uh Talking about Mount Union, and I'm sure you have too, uh, in terms of you know how they sustain the program. Um, I talked with uh, John Casper of the uh, Eau Claire Leader Telegram for a uh, article that actually appeared in Saturday's paper, and he he uh, he dug into this uh, this concept as well. He talked to uh, Lance Leipold. He talked to uh, Todd Glazer, who's the Eau Claire coach, and, and faces off against Whitewater. Uh, once a season on the field and then, you know, surely off the field in recruiting. Uh, talk to assistant athletic director at UWW. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to read my quote because, uh, you know, hopefully someone on the on the desk there edited it and made me sound better than I did when I ummed and, and hummed through it the first time. But I, I referred to it as a, as a bit of a snowball effect. The program kind of reached the Mount Union level, so to speak, and just being able to sustain itself. Uh, like Mountain Union, they have quality coaching, and now they have a history of success. Those two things kind of snowball. The success of the program attracts better kids. Top-notch coaching can take those kids and develop them, and, and the talent level continues to increase. Uh, Lance Leipold later in the article talks about uh, the thing that you talked about and the thing that we talked about in kickoff and have over the past couple of years is the extra five weeks of practice. Uh, 
uh, calling it a huge advantage. Uh, it helps tremendously with retention and development. Uh, you know, Todd Glazer talks about uh, Whitewater as, as being coached well. And to, to add in one of the things that uh, Larry Karras at uh, Mount Union talks about when, when, when he gets this question, uh, and, and it's, yeah, it, it's probably about as true with both programs now, but, um, you know, continuity of coaching staffs. Uh, you know, certainly, certainly, you know, obviously Whitewater has turned over the head coach once. They've turned over the offensive coordinator twice during this run, uh, during, uh, during this run of uh, five stag bowls. But they have a, a, a lot of continuity. The, you know, the, the current offensive coordinator came up through the system, so to speak. Uh, defensive coordinator Brian Borland uh, was there under Bob Berezowitz when this uh, run started. He continues to be the defensive coordinator. And on, on Mount Union's side, you know, obviously the defensive coordinator has changed, but their run st- uh, stretches back to you know basically 1996. I would say when the uh, you could really say the the dominance started. So it, it, I think those are the I think those are the major factors, and it was interesting to see everybody kind of take a piece of that and put it into a story. Especially Pat, because you get the assumption, especially when you see a name like Booker Stanley, or um, you know go, going back a few years at. Um, at Mountain Union, you know, there was Larry Kennard who, who had sort of flamed out at Ohio State and landed at Mountain Union. You know, you see those those kids who came from, from Division One programs and uh, and you assume, or, or, or the, the people who don't watch Division Three closely sometimes begin to assume, oh, well, they're just football factories and they just grab kids, you know, that have this Division One talent. And that's not necessarily the case because, you know, a lot of schools across Division Three rely on transfers and get kids who either got hurt, uh, you know, had Division One talent maybe in in high school and got hurt, or they went somewhere and got hurt. They went somewhere and didn't like it, transferred in, you know, lost their scholarship for whatever reason. Guys, um, you know, were out of school for a few years. You you hear that story from time to time. Somebody joined the military, came back and was 26 and wanted to play football, you know, so they're physically developed, but they just needed a place to play. There's so many different reasons why these talented kids land in Division three programs, and, and every school has a couple of them. And that's that's fine, but you can't build a championship program with three great players or two great players or one guy who comes from, a, you know, a Division one pedigree. You have to have that. The, the program goes deeper probably than the top 22. It goes, you know, at least 52 guys deep when, when you talk about building a playoff roster. It goes deeper than that when you, when you talk about building a competition within your program. For every starting spot, there's three or four guys or five or six guys aiming to be that starter. And if somebody goes down, you know, football is a game of, of, of injuries. Somebody goes down, you're able to plug somebody else back in, get coached up with those excellent coaches, Pat, as you talked about, and get them right in the program. That's the way that um, that, that, that these championship teams stay at the championship level. And what, what makes it impressive for a WIAC team like Whitewater is, is they can't carry 200 kids. You know, they have a, they have a roster limit. Uh, of 100, and so they're going to stop there. Now, they have a little bit of an advantage uh, over a lot of the private schools in terms of the tuition costs being a state school, but uh, everybody's got their challenges and, and their limitations in Division Three, and it, it, it's the way you deal with those challenges and, and build that success, keep building upon it, is what, what makes these championship teams good, not because they, they, they sort of skirt the rules in any way. Uh, I'm sure teams do it. But, but there's a way to legitimately build your program and then absorb those advantages and, and those major advantages, Pat, as you talked about, the extra weeks of practice. 
and, uh, and and having that winning, taking that out on the road with your recruiting. Keith, we've talked about uh, some of the uh, some of the conference races. There's one, and I we kind of scooched past it earlier, but before we move on, and I know we're we're getting close to the hour mark here. Uh, but before we move on to uh, what's coming up in, in week eight, I just wanted to highlight what happened in, in week seven. It's basically that the, the USA South, which is now three games into its conference season, uh, is, is log jammed with five teams tied for first. Averett, Christopher Newport, Ferrum, North Carolina Wesleyan, and Shenandoah, all two and one in the league. And I think primarily uh, two games that caused this. One, Christopher Newport uh, defeating North Carolina Wesleyan and Maryville with an upset of Averett. Yeah, until until that Maryville loss, you know, Averett was pretty much in control of, of that conference. Uh, had played, had already beaten Christopher Newport. You know, had had played uh, some of the toughest teams. You know, they still had that North Carolina Wesleyan game to end the season uh, in Week Eleven, and that was looking like that might be the the you know championship game there. And then to have both of those those two leaders, you know, North Carolina Wesleyan and Averett, go down this weekend, it's uh, it completely opens the door to anybody else and it's crazy we talked about st lawrence being three and four and atop the liberty league the overall record of christopher newport ferrum and shenandoah who are all two and one in the usa south they're two and four overall and those teams have legitimate championship legitimate playoff dreams before and and very few teams we've seen get in the playoffs over the years with uh with four losses we've seen a couple six and four teams uh olivet did it one year randolph macon did it i think christopher newport did it in its very early days north carolina wesley and they're three and three they're, they're still in this thing too and averett you know the crazy thing about about averett you know a lot of times when you're in control of your own destiny and and you lose to a team you don't think you should have lost to uh all of a sudden you're playing from behind averett's still you know right in the mix so uh it's going to be interesting to watch over the next uh, the next four weeks here, you know, to to see who emerges of, of the five teams now that are in the race. The fact that uh, you know so many of these teams have so many uh, overall losses leads me to to be pretty sure that we're going to see uh, another couple of losses, uh, maybe some unusual ones, before this uh, entire thing settles out. I, I don't think that the uh, that the winner of this conference ends up being six and one, but I do like the road that Christopher Newport has so far. Uh, or, or uh, left in front of it. They're home to Greensboro, which is one and five. They're home to Ferrum, which is two and four. Uh, they go to Maryville, and that's you know not insignificant considering Maryville just beat Averett, and it is a long way from uh, Christopher Newport to Maryville. And then they finish at home against Methodist. Uh, on the other hand, you know they're <laughs> like I said, there could be a, a bunch of other losses. There could be a crazy tiebreaker in play, but it's certainly a, an interesting uh, grouping at the top of that conference right now. Looking ahead to Week 8, there are a, a couple of prominent games that we've already mentioned, but uh, I'll uh, repeat them again here. Delaware Valley is hosting Lycoming. That is a uh, a, a key game in the MAC. Obviously, uh, uh, Delaware Valley has got a uh, has got a chance to maintain first place in the league. Uh, St. Thomas is hosting Bethel, and that's a, a game we've already talked about. But those are two teams that are still. Uh, in, in their uh, in their position in the conference, uh, there are some other kind of games though that we haven't talked about, Keith. One of them that uh, uh, just kind of jumped off the page at me is is Mary Harden Baylor now going to East Texas Baptist, and, and East Texas Baptist this season has you know had some good games, they've had some bad games that they won at Mississippi College on Saturday to kind of put themselves back on the I guess the the positive side of the ledger a little bit. 
Yeah, Pat, that, that's a game that wouldn't have jumped off the page to me even a week ago. You know, you saw East Texas Baptist coming off consecutive games, giving up 49 points in a loss at Hardin-Simmons and then a home loss to Louisiana College. But then they turn around and beat Mississippi College on Saturday, 28-20. And it shows you that they, they have a capability. You know, there are three wins this season are, are at Wisconsin Lacrosse against McMurray and, and at Mississippi College, the defending uh, American Southwest champion. So although they're three and four, they have the capability to play well on a, on a given Saturday. And uh, I don't know if I expect that to be a great game against Mary Harden Baylor. You know, they rushed for 356 yards on Saturday, held a t- held Southern Oregon to under 100 yards rushing. So another another week of them doing the two things they, they really want to do, run the ball, defend the run. Mary Harden Baylor seems to be sort of getting stronger as the season goes on. But East, Tex- East Texas Baptist looks like they do have that capability of, of putting it together on, on a given Saturday. In the CCIW, Illinois Wesleyan has a chance to uh, – Force its way into a, a potential eventual three-way tie scenario. They play at uh, at North Central Illinois Wesleyan at North Central. Uh, Carthage is at Wheaton, also in the CCIW. Uh, key games in the Empire Eight: uh, St. John Fisher at Alfred, and, and then Springfield playing uh, at Ithaca on the grass, where they have uh, struggled in the past. Uh, yeah, obviously a, a real key game out west, uh, not only for uh, top twenty-five purposes, playoff seating, all that uh, is Linfield at Pacific Lutheran. Yeah, I can't imagine Linfield being more ready for this game. You know, these teams are already traditional rivals, but Linfield losing that game back on uh, on September 11th at Cal Luther in the 47-42 loss. You know, Linfield is is really a touchdown. Those five points, they're they're those five points away from being considered top five team in the country. We all of us would have thought. Hey, they're just as good as they were last season, and uh, you know they they breeze through. You know, Laverne, Willamette, Puget Sound, and Pacific, which you know not necessarily tough games with the exception of, of Willamette in there, but they breeze through these these their four victories, and they they've only really been tested in that first game at Cal Lutheran. You know, so so this is a team that we probably all would have thought was a top five team. You know, maybe even a, a team. Uh, uh, who was a threat to break in, you know, to have a stag bowl season. And, and all of a sudden now they're down there in the 20s. And, and they have an opportunity now because Pacific Lutheran beat Cal Lutheran to, to sort of get back in control of, of their playoff seating in the West region, to get back in control of the, uh, of the Northwest Conference. All they have to do is go to Pacific Lutheran and, and beat their rival. That's all. Uh, and then uh, for the wrapping up the rest of the Week 8 schedule, uh, Worcester at Case Western Reserve, uh, as as uh, Case tries to continue to remain unbeaten and in contention for a Pool B bid. And then DePauw goes to Trinity. And even though Trinity lost uh, last Saturday handily to Texas Lutheran and uh, you know falls to 3-3, three 1-2 and three, one and two in the conference, DePauw has, to put it mildly, struggled uh, going to San Antonio, Texas to play Trinity University. He's Keith McMillan. I'm Pat Coleman. As we wrap up the Around the Nation podcast, uh, the wrapping up the Week 7 of the Division Three football season for 2010. Don't forget to stick around, of course. Uh, we'll have statistical spotlight uh, overnight uh, on Monday night. Uh, we'll announce our video play of the week on Tuesday, around the region columns on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then Keith's Around the Nation column on Thursday.